Michelle Constant on SAFM. Professor Tabo Ditsele, he's our guest today, and I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you for having me here. So, Prof, you um, chose the song Mariah Carey. I was kind of surprised, actually, because I always feel like when someone chooses a song like Mariah Carey, Visions of Love, and I know your wife is joining us here in the studio, it, it makes me think, oh, this guy might be a bit of a softie, actually. Uh, well, you know what? <laughs> uh, Maria Carey came into the music scene, um, I should say, late 90s, early, ni- I mean, late 1980s. Um, she's two years older than me. So, you know, yeah. when she became a, a, a big star, that was the time when I was in my early 20s. So I just fell in love with her sound, um, you know, and the fact that she's from New York City, also fascinated me because that's a city I always wanted to visit, you know. Yeah. I vividly remember in 93 telling my colleagues that I, I you know, I want to go to New York. And You're they packing your it bags off. and going to the Big Apple. Uh, just to go see the city mm. because I thought it was overrated. I wanted to see New York. So yeah. I can tell you that I've been to New York City uh, five times already, um, you know. The you only still think bottom. it's overrated? No, it's not. You know, it blew me away. It blew me away, you know, Midtown Manhattan, oh. uh, you know. Uh, Brooklyn, you know, yeah. it's only the, the, the Long Island borough that I didn't go to, but the Bronx, you know, Jamaica, Queens, Harlem, you know, it's, I can go to New York City every time I have an opportunity. So that that's why I I lean towards Mariah Carey yeah. as opposed to other, other artists. So Vision of Love is a song that my mom even says, you know, should I die before her, she will ask that it be played oh. for me. At my uh, funeral. That's how <laughs> crazy I was with Mariah Carey. God willing, that's not the case. Yes. So, Prof, what actually is a sociolinguist, a linguist anthropologist? What is that? What do you do? Well, um, firstly, or first and foremost, a sociolinguist is a linguist. Now, what is a linguist? A yeah. linguist is someone who studies the science of language. Yeah. Uh, you know, it could be in, you know, uh, uh, Sentence structure, uh, you know, yeah, sentence structure like syntax. It could be like how words are formed. That's morphology. Now, sociolinguists look look at the relationship between language and society. That's what mm. they look at, you know. So that's why sociolinguists, socio means sociology, linguistics or sociolinguistics. Now, linguistic anthropologist also does that. But there's an added element that they do. They incorporate culture into it so you don't just study language and society you also look at how culture influences that relationship wow so you know because when you talk of firstly the science of language um and the language structure etc it's it's totally understandable there is a science but what we often forget with language is how emotive it is and how passionate we feel about our language, our heritage, etc. That uh, must be a space that you're playing in and teasing apart all the time. Ah, uh, yes. I mean, ordinarily, as a linguistic anthropologist, I, you know, uh, I sometimes I, 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 I go into spaces where many people may not have the courage to go ask tough questions because that's what professors should do in society, mm. not just, uh, you know, sing after me or, you know, repeat parrot statements, mm. is to ask tough questions. So I have gone into that space where I ask us to, you know, do an introspection as a society to say, um, why is it that in South Africa, and I will use 
like you know racial groups mm. why is it that when it comes to white south africans um someone of greek descent you know they know they're of greek descent but they've accepted that in south africa they were raised english or africans yeah. um you know chinese south africans many of them don't speak mandarin uh indian south africans many of them don't speak urdu or tagalog or yeah. hindi but why is it that with with black africans it's you know we 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 read or we we the, how we react to language is so emotive um you know so those are the things that i look at perhaps to look at um you know a friend of my an ex colleague of mine who passed away may his soul rest in peace uh, professor man used to say if you are of german descent or mm. if you are of french descent even if you don't speak french what the french or what the germans have achieved over centuries is so big that it's just enough to say I'm of German descent, right? But if you are of Tswana descent like I am, what, what is it in history that I can pinpoint at my people have done this? So language becomes that one issue that I have to hold on to. So it's historic. It's it's about what do we have from history to now that oh, makes I us so emotional. Oh, I can see why some people call you a radical linguist. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you you talk about um the tough questions and i recall that when we last spoke uh, you were on the phone we were actually talking about the um the uh, census the census that's yes. correct thank you you see you're the linguist i'm just <laughs> i'm just the tired presenter after the rugby so it's like, okay you slept late as well oh i oh, i didn't sleep at all but yeah so the census you had some very interesting points to make about the census and the numbers and you actually felt that the numbers could be skewed talk to us about that take us back to that again uh, the methodology that yes. stats as uses yeah. uh, if you are going to ask questions you know you get the data based on the questions that you ask yeah so if you are going to put a question to me that evokes my heritage i'm going mm. to give you an answer based on my heritage not based on language practice So I used to work at at, at Status A and I used to ask why are we interested in the heritage of South Africans uh, when we want to influence policy based on language use shouldn't we be asking questions mm. based on what people use as opposed to who they are and I I'll tell you why in, in black african communities if someone says to you um I am Xhosa they don't necessarily say Xhosa is their home language that you shouldn't read that mm. they are telling you what their paternal lineage is their yes. grandfather spoke Xhosa it was transferred to their father and then to them mm. um so don't read too much into that so the methodology that they use uh, elicit data that is based on who our paternal grandfathers were as as opposed to what we we speak on a daily basis and uh, uh, two weeks ago i used an example of a waitress who told me that she is tsonga mm. and when i ask her how good are you in tsonga she says i i i can't go beyond greetings uh, grew mm. up in mamelodi my my mom is is pedi uh, my dad is tsonga that's why i call myself tsonga so that lady is probably captured in the census as a tsonga speaker but they are actually not Uh, so the question that i ask is what do you do with that data it's a nice to have um yeah. it, it doesn't for and the other th- big is that big issue that i have with census is that it doesn't tell us about 
uh, how multilingual we are. Yeah. I mean, I can communicate in four languages, probably five, yeah. but I'm captured only as a Setswana speaker. Why would you collect data along monolingual lines yeah. when South Africa is a society of multilinguals? We need to know uh, that multilingual aspect of South Africa, not just monolingual as if this, you know, Michelle Constant is just English and that's all that she is. She, she can't communicate in, in anything else. So that's yeah. what I'm questioning. So, so how do we then, um, uh, how, do we, how do we shift that? What is the question that should be asked? We should really based on people's lived day-to-day experiences. The yeah. other thing is, um, I've done research where I didn't have boxes, you yeah. know, for, for my participants. I didn't give them boxes. I just said, tell us, tell me what your home language is. And some people picked Sipitori. You know, I was doing mm. research in Pretoria. But had I had boxes... I would have forced people to choose from the list that I've given them. So what Stats needs to do, Stats A needs to do, is not to lead people into yes. going with standard varieties. That, that is not that helpful, unless if they need that data for to know, you know our heritage languages. But as far as I know, for language policy purposes, you need to know how people communicate on a daily basis. So that's the first thing that I would say do. And the second part is capture the multilingual nature of South Africa. We need to know how many people in South Africa speak English as a second language. I mean, Michelle, there's a chance. Or even English as a first. So so I may speak English as a first language, but then I have a couple of other very basic languages. Yes. But so then which one is my, I'm assuming English is my first language, but then there are other languages and maybe we need to tease those apart. Yes. And yeah. even even make a distinction between, because I know pe- many people outside linguistics aren't aware of this. Yeah. Um, there is a difference between home language and first language. It's not the same thing. Yeah. Um, we just assume because perhaps majority of us have their first language and home language being the same language, but it doesn't go for doesn't. many people. I mean, children who go to former Model C schools, English, is English their becomes their home, I mean, their first language, even though their home language <laughs> may not be English. So, you know, after three years of kindergarten, you know, by, by the time they get to grade four, English has already taken over. Yeah. It's what they communicate in every day. But then when census comes, we capture them as speakers of Setswana, speakers of Isizulu, when they are not, when yeah. they are not. So we need to have that clear line between what's a home language and what's a first language. We need to have the discussion. Yes. Have the conversation. Yes. We're going to go to a break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to play your second song. We'll talk about it afterwards. But once we come back from your second song, I also want to talk to you about what we were talking about off air, the idea of contact languages, which is really about the uh, conversation about what is the creolization of language and what does that actually mean? We'll talk about that in a moment. That's the gorgeous choice, uh, George Michael and Cowboys and Angels. And that's the choice of our guest presenter today, Professor Tabo Ditsele, social linguist, social uh, or linguist anthropologist at TUT, the Chwane University of Technology. Lots of discussion around language and how we think about language and use it. And uh, if you do want to comment, I see a couple of your messages coming through. You're welcome to WhatsApp us with a voice note or um, otherwise just uh, print it or write it. But WhatsApp is always easy. Uh, voice on 0614104107. So, George Michael. Hmm. Ah, yes. The, I mean, I did my trick in 1987. 
Yeah. Um, when, uh, you know, just after the end of Wham, beginning of yes. his solo career. And um, yes, uh, you know, from <laughs> Wham days, you know, be, you know, collaboration between him and Andrew Ridgely. Yeah. Just loved it. So when he went solo, I used to have a music book. I don't know how many people know what the music book is. So that's you know, what is a, book. a music book? It's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a notebook where you write lyrics in it, and then you practice you practice until you get them right. That's what a, a, a you know music book is. It's outdated now because of you know we have modern technology. You can easily retrieve a song from from the internet. And always, sometimes you would listen to a song, and what you thought you were hearing is yes. far cry exactly. from what was actually in the lyrics. Yes, so uh, you know, just like Mariah Carey, I loved him from the from oh. the from the eighties, yeah. and you know, last I mean, this year I, I traveled to uh, Connecticut, yes. and I was, I was flying from Cape Town to to Atlanta, Georgia. I was, you know, I watched his doc, his documentary, you know, from you know his yes. humble days, yeah. his you know uh, 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 Greek Cypriot uh, roots. Yeah. Uh, to how he started singing in, in London, um, you know, until the end. I mean, I, I think he died on a Christmas day. I can't yeah. remember the year. But, you know, his sound, his sound. I mean, it, you know, Mariah Carey and George Smooth. Michael, it, it reveals my age. Well, it also reveals your taste as well, which is ah, kind yes. of an interesting thing as yes. well. So we've got a comment from someone. Let's uh, go to it and hear what they have to say. You've got your headphones, yeah. Yes. Morning, Michelle interesting show on languages i was very impressed yesterday with the sports commentator i think he's an africana guy Rainier. he speaks fluent Setswana, english and afrikaans you know his commentary on rugby yesterday i was so impressed with him so he's an interesting guy i think it's renia swat we actually yes. had him on the show yesterday talking briefly about the rugby Talk to us about that. Yeah, well, he grew up on a farm in the Northwest. Yeah. And, you know, if you listen to him without without knowing who he is, you wouldn't think he's he's white, he's Afrikaans. He has no accent when he speaks Setswana. He's mm. so good. Yeah. Um, and it shows you that if you throw a language at a child, they will acquire it naturally. So Rainier picked up Setswana from, you know, when he was very, very young. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, he has his, you know, his, he, he, he can say proverbs, idioms of Setswana. I mean, mm. his whole life is around the Setswana culture. He knows it so well. Um, and of course, um, you know, with his love for rugby, uh, I mean, he, comments, he, he commentates on rugby uh, on Motswading FM, you know, your sister yeah. station. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's interesting because the moment someone starts to know proverbs and idioms and that kind of thing, then that's when you, you realize that that yes. person is really kind of entrenched yes. in the language. I wanted to ask you about, you, you talked about children learning at an early age. Yes. Is it only at an early age, like when our mind is incredibly plastic, that you think we can learn a language? Or could someone learn a language at the age of 70 or 80 or 90? You could. The difference is if, you know, there's a theory by Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, mm, one yes. of the best, uh, you know, psycholinguists in the world. Yeah. Uh, he talks about puberty age. He says, if you, if you are exposed to a language before your, before your you know, th when you're 12, 13, you can reach first language uh, you know, fluency. Status. Yes. Yeah. But after 13, you will, there's a chance you will attain that status. But then your accent will always give you away, you know. Um, <laughs> so uh, someone like Renier, I mean, uh, using this as an example, he mm. acquires Setswana before he turned 13. And it, it comes out mm. in his, in how he sounds. But there are other people who learn other languages beyond age 13, 14. 
And you can, you know, when you are a mother tongue speaker, you can pick up some slight intonation that's different from um, how ordinarily people sound. So you can learn a language at 17. So, I, so like Nikoluma is like a white woman because I learned after um, 13. And it will show. So, so we, one of our questions that we've just had come through now is when you travel, you obviously pick up a South African accent. Can you pick up um, where they come in South Africa? Do you, are you listening out for that? Um, you know what? It takes a trained year to pick up uh, different accents. Mm. And the best year is the year of a, a home language speaker. So, for instance, in my home language, I can tell if someone is from Freiburg, from Kimberley, is from Glagsdorp, is from Rastimek, I can tell you that. Mm. But when it comes to English, I can only tell you that this person's background is Afrikaans. Uh, but when it comes to first language English speakers, I do not, I cannot tell you, I cannot separate someone from Kabeha um, versus Deben or versus Cape Town. Yeah. But other people like one of our guests, uh, you know, uh, has done studies in that area. So he's able to you know, with, uh, uh, um, you know, fairly good accuracy. And there is yeah. another gentleman, by the way, he's now in the, in the Netherlands, uh, Professor Bertas van Roy. Yes. He's quite good, um, you know, in picking up, um, you know, English accents. You know, he can even tell you that I think you grew up in, or you went to this type of school. That's yes. how good he is. Yeah. Uh, but I don't have that trained ear when it comes to English. But I can separate someone from... Uh, Australia to Canada yes. to the United States that I can tell so you've got to tease it out at home yes contact languages I talked about the creolization of language and maybe creole is the wrong word I'm not sure if it has a, a kind of political a, a association so perhaps you could advise yes. us on that talk to us about sepitori tsotsital ah, let's start with with creole yeah uh, creole is a language that uh, it starts with pidgin. So pidgin would be a language that uh, people who do not have a common language start to communicate in. So they are f the first generation born into a pidgin, that mm. then becomes a creole because for them, it's the only language they know. That's how Africans developed, you know, yeah. Dutch, you know, uh, Malaysian languages, yeah. Portuguese, you know, that's how it's, it's formed. And it becomes a creole that was called Combestal, Kitchen Dutch, it became Africans. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of contact languages of the now, like Sepitori, Sepitori yeah. is actually not a Creole. And why is it, it why, why do we disqualify it as a Creole? It's because when it started, for, uh, you know, its early formation in the 1860s, 1870s, uh, it, it was, it came as a contact between people who spoke the Katla dialect of Setswana and people who spoke, you know, different varieties of Northern Sotho. Yeah. So because the two languages are mutually intelligible, yeah. You talk about a koine, you can't talk of a pigeon. Uh, so that's that's the early formation of Sibitori. So people, some people think it's uh, it started in the 2000s. No, 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 no. It dates back to the 1860s. Wow, okay. And what about Tsotsital? Um, Tsotsital, um, a friend of mine, uh, Professor Ellen Hess. calling it Tsotsital. <laughs> like... Well, it started, you know, as an anti-language. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, language of the Tsotsis, yes. you know, in the 30s. Uh, you know, one of our guests will touch on that. Um, so uh, Ellen Hess argues that it's actually not a language. She argues that it's a dialect. Mm. You know, it's a dialect. It's a, it's a conglomeration of words or lexical items that you embed on a standard language. So, for instance, um, Africans is capable or you know, in Kofifi years, mm. that was the base language that was used to express Sotsital. So after the first removals of the 60s, 
you know, it was replaced with Soto mainly in Gauteng and Isizulu. So today we have different hospitals. You know, you go to Venda, uh, you know, men there speak hospital, but the base language is not. It's, it's, it will be Chivenda. You know, in Rastenberg, where I come from, people speak Zotital, but the base would be Setswana. So any language is capable of hosting, and I use hosting deliberately, of yeah. hosting Zotital. So, Kolesile uh, in East London is asking a brilliant question. He says, morning, Mitch and the team, be- beautiful conversation with the prof. I have a question. Do we think in a particular language? We think in a language that we were, you know, when you expose a subject to someone, they think that subject in that language. Give an example. If I'm a medical, if I train to become a medical doctor mm. uh, and you teach me medicine in French or in, in English, yeah. I think medicine in English. I don't think medicine in my home language. I'm a good example. I don't think sociolinguistics in Setswana. I don't. If you were to say to me, you know, you know, do a 20-minute presentation in Setswana, I, I, I won't know where to start. Because my thought process in sociolinguistics, it's so English, um, you know. So we think in a language that we're exposed, uh, uh, you know, or let me put it this way. The language of teaching, teaching and learning of a particular uh, sci- subject, is the one that we think that subject in. So you wouldn't take an engineer who is uh, a Zulu and you say, okay, function in Zulu for engineering. They won't know where to start. They don't have the terminology. Their thought process is, is, not, is not in Zulu. I mean, you know, we have to go to a break and then to your guests. But what you raise is then like the danger of the politicization of language. Because, I mean, the moment you're kind of thinking in English, you, you, you're thinking in terms of the stuff you've read in English and the kinds of, I mean, I'm thinking in the, in the sort of, you know, the pedagogy and in the academia, in the world of academia, is you read all these papers. And if they're all in English, they all come from a certain culture, um, wherever they are in the world. And that then transfers to the way you're thinking and I'm thinking as well. Yes, that language shapes your thinking. Uh, and we shouldn't apologize for it. We should perhaps blame, you know, the system that we come from. Um, but, you know, our children, especially people who go to former modulacy schools, mm. they don't think any subject in, in the language we say they are yeah. members of. They think in a language that they were exposed to from primary primary school all through their mm. education. And what do we do as a society? We generally make them apologize. We take them through a guilt, you know, we guilt trip them to mm. say, how can you not express this in, in, in your home language? Sure. You're forgetting that this person was exposed for the last 20 years um, in English. Yeah. But all of a sudden, when they want to express themselves in English, you say, yeah, be yourself. So the question <laughs> is, if you say be yourself, who are they? There's no contradiction in being black and being English. There's no contradiction. We have so many people who are like that. So you're talking about present, present, presentism. I mean, essentially what you're saying is like we have to start thinking in the present. So um, uh, people who say, no, you have to be uh, look at your heritage and then speak the, the language of your heritage. That's almost like, a, it's like looking back into the past as opposed to being in the present for the moment. Yeah, that, that is to you know, uh, uh, push a particular angle to suggest that it is impossible to know your heritage but through a different language. I mean, in the article that I published recently, I made an example of Indian South Africans. Many of them don't speak, you know, in languages from the subcontinent. But, you know, they can cook an Indian dish. They know who they are. They can even tell you where in Sri Lanka their 
great great maternal grandmother mm. came from so for all intents and purposes these people know who they are it's just that they express who they are in english so there's no contradiction okay we're going to go to a break. We're chatting to our professor, who is uh, Tabo Ditsele, social linguist, linguist anthropologist, and certainly raising some really, really interesting questions. How do you feel? You're welcome to keep sending in those WhatsApp voice notes, but also WhatsApp questions as well. And if you'd like to give us a call on 86 We're going to go to his guests after the break. At SAFM Radio and at Mesh Constant on SAFM. 9.41, you're with SAFM 104 to 107. Don't forget the lovely KG is up at 10 o'clock um, with Seasons and some great Sunday music for you. I think it's just what we all need. We're having a fascinating conversation about language and how we use language and uh, how we think about language and what does it mean in terms of our heritage? What does it mean in terms of who we are and who our children are? Professor Tabo Ditsele is um, a lecturer and a professor at the University of Technology, Chwana University of Technology, or TUT. One of our um, uh, listeners saying, I wish we could have an entire day to explore this further. I always associate thought with conceptualizing, understanding, if you will, and I'm not sure how it actually links to language. Um, someone else saying, uh, James in, in Limpopo. Ah, Limpopo. Not Limpombo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's an ECD. Ah, James is an ECD teacher by profession, and I really am enjoying this conversation, James. We are all really enjoying the conversation as well. Prof, your first guest is Prof Regend Mestri, um, Research Chair in Linguistics at the University of Cape Town's English Department. Why did you choose uh, Prof Mestri? Uh, Prof Maestri is a guru. He's a giant in sociolinguistics. Uh, just to give you, paint a picture, uh, the National Research Foundation has a rating for researchers. It starts from C all the way to A in reverse order. So C3, C2, C1. Uh, just to give you an idea, I'm a C2 rated researcher. Yeah. Rajat Maestri is sitting at A1. So you can't go higher than A1. Um, so he is a real, you know, legend when it comes to uh, <laughs> He's been doing this for donkey's years now. And I look up to him when it comes to uh, sociolinguistics. That's why I picked him. Prof. Regen Maestri, how do you feel about that? What happens when you kick to A1? I mean, what do you do? Well, there's no point, surely, then, any further. Uh, not really. Um, well, good morning to you, Michelle. Good morning. To out there. I've been listening to Tabo with great interest, I must say, and he's been frank and engaging on a number of important topics. So I, I, let's not worry about my rating. That's from <laughs> something that comes, you know, afterwards. I mean, primarily like Tabo, I just enjoy uh, working about uh, working in and about languages and about language and society. That's what sociolinguistics is about. And I think I would defer to uh, Tabo. He's definitely not going to be staying on a C2 rating for long because he has experiences uh, in South Africa, um, highly multilingual experiences that quite honestly um, are far different and perhaps superior to mine. So I don't place myself much higher than, than Tabo. So the topics you're talking about are exceptionally interesting and uh, I'm not sure that I know the answers to all of them in fact and I think even with something like uh, the nature of thought and thinking 
I think at some very basic level, like emotions and so on, we might not even think in language. But once mm. we start uh, getting a bit more rational, then I would agree with Tabo that indeed uh, we build up uh, knowledge and build up competence in particular languages. It needn't be English alone. It could be, again, the theme of multilingualism comes in. So we might think about certain topics in English, but with a slight tinge of some other language as well. True. And from many of our speakers at UCT, uh, students claim that I think in, let's say, is it closer, uh, but I uh, write and speak uh, in English for academic purposes. So even that, uh, that competence, that multilingualism is broken down. So even thinking, I think, um, it's pretty complicated. But let me stop here and invite you to uh, interrogate me. So, Prof Mestri, I know that um, uh, Prof uh, Ditele has a question for you, but I, I want to quickly ask you something because you've raised such an interesting thing, and I think it goes back to how we think in languages. You know, we have that, I think it's the frontal cortex and the limbic, uh, limbic at the back of the brain. Is there a possibility that in your frontal cortex which is your sort of more conceptual brain, that that's where you're thinking in language. But as you say, that maybe when you're in your limbic, which is the fight or flight of the sort of reptile animal, animal part of us, that in fact we're thinking there in emotions. So, and I don't even know how you think in emotions, but, you, but do you know what I mean? Is that possible? Yes, I think it is possible. Look, um uh, knowledge about the brain and functioning and language has improved enormously in the last two decades, as you can imagine, with yeah. uh, PET scans and so on, absolutely new technology, injecting uh, chemicals into the brain and seeing how different parts of the brain light up as we talk about different things. So three decades ago, we might have given our students the impression that language it's somewhat localized in the brain to two or three areas. Um, these days, um, I think the uh, experts, um, and these experts not just from language, but from medicine, physiology, anatomy, and so on, would say that uh, language is distributed uh, um, throughout, uh, or no, well, not throughout, but in many sectors of the brain. Hmm. So. Something as simple as nouns and verbs actually appear to be processed and possibly stored differently <laughs> in our brains in you know minutely different centers. So indeed, I would say the jury is still out as to how language is fully packaged in our minds, conceptually, uh, conceptually as well as physically. Wow. Um, yeah. So I think indeed. Um, you are quite right that uh, there's a fairly good case for saying there's kind of, you know, emotional intelligence versus uh, sort of very rational and conceptual and deliberate intelligence yeah, and thinking and language use. Yeah. We uh, do have to go to a break, but before we go to the break, I'm going over to you, Tom. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Raj. Um, quite modest. Um, <laughs> I know you to be a modest person, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, Raj, I just want us to look at Tzotzital. Uh, because, you know, you spoke about the jury being out, you know, regarding how language is, uh, is acquired and conceptualized. How, how would you characterize Tzotzital 
And would you say that there is one societal or there are different societals? How would you characterize it? Well, um, I, I don't know. Where, are we supposed to have a break, Michelle, or should I approach Why don't you? we go to the break, get it out of the way so that you can answer, because that would make it uh, much easier. Michelle Constant on SAFM. So our guest presenter is Professor Tabo Ditsele, and his guest is Professor Rajend Mestri, who is a research chair in linguistics with the University of Cape Town's English department. And the question that uh, Professor Ditsele has asked is when we look at the different types of Tsotsi tals and how does that come about? Prof Mestri? We seem to have lost Prof Mestri. Is he still there? Nope, he, he's here. Let's go to him right away. He is on the line. I'm going to check. Prof Mestri, you with us still? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the the answer to the question on Sotsital. Okay, thank you. So um, Sotsital is an interesting phenomenon. I wouldn't consider it to be a separate language, even though many of its younger speakers like to uh, playfully claim that that is their main language. For me, Sotsital and comes in very uh, in many shapes and sizes. I think Chabo uh, has said that already. And uh, it comes through in a certain uh, life stage, frankly. Earlier puberty was mentioned as a kind of uh, wow. important yes. uh, phase of one's life, uh, linguistically and otherwise. And likewise, puberty is roughly uh, the, the rite of passage time for many youngsters when they start getting into a mode of using language that includes a lot of slang that deliberately distances oneself from the home domain, from the family, <laughs> and aligns oneself with one's friends, uh, especially uh, the street and with macho males. So Sotital is largely a male phenomenon, but that doesn't exclude some females from uh, entering into the community of users. So at a certain stage of life, people want to experiment with language as with other facets of life, and indeed, uh, this is the period when the use of uh, slang items is quite prolific. And in South Africa, it seems we do it like our rugby. We do it better than uh, most people globally. So people in different parts of Kauteng especially or thereabouts take pride in their local uh, slang use, uh, use, so much so that they give them names like Sotsital, like Iskanto. I've heard names that my students have given me like Ringas and Wheaties and Lingo and so on. <laughs> so people uh, like to think that it's a separate language, but it's not because it uses the same phonetics, phonology, syntax as your family language, surprise. Um, but the vocabulary is so changed, so disguised, uh, that it feels like a totally new language. Um, And then each neighborhood would like to rival that of the others and uh, spawn or invent new vocabulary. And you can have all kinds of interesting terms. Some of these are pejorative. Some of them are sexist because it's largely a macho phenomenon. And... Uh, males talk about 
things like money and females and smoking and so on a lot. And these have multiple synonyms. You, you have far more words for money and smoking and girls than you really need. You might have up to a, a, you know five or six or seven words. So it's a highly creative uh, phase of life, but it's uh, part of people's multilingualism. They can easily switch to a home language if they really need to in speaking to a grandparent, and they can easily switch to using a more official language in the classroom with their teachers. I'll stop you. Fantastic. Prof. Rajend Mesri, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to crack into your second guest simply because I see time ticking furiously away. As uh, one of our listeners said, could this conversation not go on all day? I would absolutely agree. Dr. Yanga Majola is one of your colleagues at the Chwane University of Technology. And I'm interested in uh, the idea of how we look at competency and language. And I suspect that's uh, why you chose Dr. Majola as one of your guests. Uh, well, I chose it for a different reason. Uh, Dr. Majola works, uh, he's a colleague of mine, he's based on the Mombela campus. In fact, I take, very, I take pride in him because you know, he's my master's graduate. Um, you know, before he went to University of the Vedvatasaran to, to do his PhD there. He works on a very important uh, variety of language called Isbaka. Um, ah. It's spoken in the Muzimkulu area. You know, when I went through his, uh, you know, when he submitted chapters, I got intrigued. I thought, you know, he, we need to give him a platform. Uh, Dr. Majola, good morning. How are you? Um, well, thanks, Prof. Uh, good morning. Uh, How are you doing? Yes, just quickly in the interest of time, uh, please tell us something about Isibaka and located uh, within South Africa's linguistic landscape. All right. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity, Prof, and good morning to everyone. Um, I, will, I will start by just briefly explaining about the history of Amabaka so that we can be able to understand it in terms of its history first. Amabaka, you know, lived um, near the Nibombo Mountains in Pumalanga and Swaziland. In the 19, uh, in the 1420s, sorry, and they are descendants of Fulufuluenja, who bore uh, Wushe and Zelemu, and the line continued through uh, Wabane, who bore Vebi, and uh, Kalimeche. These are the uh, uh, kings of Amabaka because they've got a kingship that is not really uh, recognized, but that is known. Um, if you if you would have listened uh, or come up we are in the funeral of uh, the late uh, um, um, Baka chief um, mm. um, um, he mentioned that Mabata can you come together and sort this thing out because we know of your kinship so that we can recognize it accordingly uh, but but then very Kalmeche who continued and bore Matigane who, who is the most revered king of Amabata and he bore Sonyang Wengapai and Dikwayo who, who then uh, uh, bore um, um, Bikiana. Uh, I'll tell you why I'm explaining this. And the three uh, people now that are remaining is Nomtegeke, whose descendants are based in Mount Fred. It has recently been changed to Kabaka. And Fritisile, whose descendants are, are based in, in um, High Flat, that is KZN, and Singapore, whose descendants are based in Umsinkuru. Now, this will answer the question why Amabaka sounds different when they speak. That is because some are based in KZN, in Umzimkulu, as well as in Highflat and Itobo and Bulwe surrounding areas. And others are based in Mount Freya, Mount Ellis, Kokstad, and those areas. And they were influenced largely by Isikosa. 
and 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 those in whom Zinkulu are influenced largely because of provincial demarcation by Isi Zulu. So they would sound different naturally, but if you listen to the Isi Baka language, it is more closer to the Siswati language because of the, 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 the history that I've just explained where they come from. So when you listen to Isi Baka, it is a mixture of Isi Kosa, Isi, Isi, Isi Zulu, and Siswati, but, but, but slightly distinct based on accent, based on terminology. And, and, and a number of other aspects. So it is, according to the people there, you know, believed to be a distinct language of all the three that I've mentioned because it yeah. brings them yes. together. So, you know, I, I feel we've got tons of messages coming through, people saying all sorts of different things, and I'm afraid we are going to have to kind of close off because I want to give you the last word, Prof. Um, someone messaging now to say, Ray Tsotsital, in the 1960s, I was in a Capricorn high school hostel, and we had our own language that only the fellow pupils would understand, and that's from another James in Limpopo. So that's kind of interesting as well. It's like you have a secret code or your secret language to disassociate yourself from everyone else. Yes, that's why at the beginning of the of our conversation I said it's an anti-language. You know, it started off as a jargon used in prisons yeah. for, you know, just a an in-group members to yeah. communicate without prison warders understanding what. Uh, but it's today it's no longer spoken by Tsotsis. I'm not a Tsotsi, I speak Tsotsital when the <laughs> situation allows. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Prof, we do have to close, and I'd like to say we have 30 seconds. How would you close off a conversation of this size and magnitude? I would appeal to South Africans to be open-minded when it comes to language and where it's going. Um, And I would urge them to read the article that I published on the 10th of October in the Daily Maverick, where I... I say my crystal ball is telling me that one day there will be language that we hardly would hardly recognize. Mm. We should be mentally prepared for it. It's coming. It's called a poikiko style that is coming maybe in 100 years from now. Uh, thank you for hosting me, Michelle. A poikiko style, Professor Tabo Ditsela. What a fantastic conversation. Thank you also to our listeners. I'm 